All right, hello everyone. Welcome to this edition of the Amigos Interview. I am joined today by the one and only Kim Justice. Hello, Kim. Hey, how's it going? Going just fine. So, Kim, for those of you, uh, for those listeners who are not familiar with you and uh, the work that you do, can you can you briefly uh, give us an explanation? Sure. Um, basically, um, I've been on YouTube for a good few years now. I mostly do uh, documentaries, um, often covering a lot of stuff in the old computer scene. I've done a lot of uh, documentaries about classic um, companies related to the Amiga and the ZX Spectrum, mostly UK stuff. Um, companies like Sensible Software, Team17, Mirasoft, uh, the Bitmap Brothers, quite a lot of the famous leading like Psygnosis, Ocean, all that sort of things. I tend to cover various people as well um, and various any other topics that catch my whim um, and also just generally enjoying games coming to it from that perspective of a big video game computer game fan yeah how did you how did you get started with all this stuff um i got started um basically um, my degree that i did was in um tv production mm-hmm. so i was doing a creative degree because i was kind of wanted to get into the tv business or the movie making business or whatever um and after my first year at uni um I had kind of a long summer break and my plan was right i need to um kind of practice the skills that i've learned so i kind of already had a youtube channel i was just kind of playing bass or whatever on it um i, I decided to do a few games reviews of um sega stuff because i thought well no one else is really doing that so I thought it might be a nice bit of fun i'd kind of done it a bit on a uh, message boards like just talking about old games so i thought i'll do it on youtube and um seems like people kind of liked it and have been doing it ever since and so it kind of developed from um, a fun hobby or a way to practice into um well, what i do for a living which is kind of cool yeah that's that's amazing you're one of the few the lucky few that are able to, to do this as your nine to five job that's fantastic um take me back what is sort of your gaming lineage i mean how did you start out i started out very young um it was probably about it was 1990 and my dad used to work for amstrad oh and um, yeah, um, not as like not a big deal or anything. One of the drivers, but <laughs> um, did know him, um, Big Al. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic! I was going <laughs> to yeah. ask if your dad was Alan Sugar. That would have been fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd certainly have a bit more cash. <laughs> um, well, no, but they kind of uh, sort of had similar, both kind of East End Bower boys, I suppose would be the word. Um, wheeler dealers um anyway from that um he was kind of aware of the spectrum because uh, amstrad had the spectrum mm-hmm. at that point they brought music life um so i got a spectrum in 1990 um when i was like five years old and it pretty much started from there really i just um i enjoyed games ever since i used to um get a lot of spectrum games because they were so cheap like you could get them in corner shops for a couple of quid like for classic budget titles they won the, the cover tapes as well mm-hmm. in all the magazines there was like cover tapes with like five six seven even more sometimes games on them and that was where my love for games started and then i kind of went from there to uh, the mega drive snes amiga playstation and kind of yeah <laughs> It's interesting that, that that was your lineage because I don't know that I've met anybody from the UK that had that exact progression. Um, what was it that brought you? So you had the Mega Drive, the SNES, and then you went to the Amiga from there, right? So I got into, um, it was very late that I got into the Amiga. I think um, for a while I'd always wanted one. So yeah, I got my Amiga Christmas of 1994. Oh, okay. So, yeah, so late really in the game. late. Yeah. Yes, I mean, 
they were pretty cheap systems by that point, even like the A1200 was, like, relatively speaking, certainly more cheaper than a PC was. Mm-hmm. Um, I think um, a lot of it was kind of wanting that um, sort of computer thing, like wanting a new, that like, cool computer. But us being a family, we didn't have, like, the, however much it would be, like, one grand, one and a half grand or whatever it was for a PC back then. Mm-hmm. So the Amiga kind of came as like, yeah, oh, yeah, and get that. And again, it was something I fell in love with. Again, it was a case like, being that it was so late on, there were lots of really great titles around for not all that much money. Yeah, that makes sense. So did you notice, um, because almost everybody that I talked to from the UK, uh, they started and they were, you know, they, they had your natural natural progression of, you know, Spectrum, C64, Amiga, or something like that. Coming from the, you know, from having a Mega Drive and then a Super Nintendo, uh, what was it like when you first fired up the Amiga and you you started playing Amiga games? Um, I don't think I really, I mean, the main difference, I suppose, wasn't necessarily like the arcade games or anything like that. It was having um, more of the simulation games. I mean, I think the Amiga was where I really got into that sort of thing. Oh, okay. I first became aware of that football management game, say, which I used to love. I used to love games like Premier Manager 3, Ultimate Soccer Manager. It was so cool. Like, wow, I can actually manage, like, my favourite team and, you know, try and take them to, like, the Premiership or whatever. Um, and later on, also other games like, I suppose, Syndicate, Theme Park. Those are the main differences. I mean, as far as, like, the action games go, and, like, the platform games, I mean, they, I mean, there was plenty of fun ones that I enjoyed, but that wasn't necessarily much different from what I was playing on Mega Drive. Yeah. Right. But yeah, I think those simulation games were the main thing that kind of really pushed me towards the Amiga when I actually started playing on one. That makes a lot of sense. I really think that that's those are the kind of games where the Amiga is really able to shine. The the uh, the simulations, the games like Syndicate that require precise mouse control. Yeah, I mean Syndicate on the consoles is well completely different. It's not even nearly like the same thing, really. Um, I mean, there's simulation games, there's like management sort of games or attempts at them on the Mega Drive. And so some of them are really good, but you can't quite beat having that, that keyboard and mouse and being able to go into much more detail in those games because of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So w- what happened uh, after the Amiga? Did you continue to buy new games and systems all the way up to the present day or was there sort of a cutoff for you? Um, I've pretty much always tried to keep up. Um, in some way or another. I mean, I mostly do, as far as modern stuff now, I'm mostly a PC gamer. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I had like PS2, Xbox 360. Um, I've got a PS4. doesn't do much, as I say, but um, I do still play modern stuff, even though I mostly do kind of stick with like the old systems these days. They're a bit more simple for me. Yeah. I don't yeah. have time to hours for uh, games to update on a console. I understand that. Uh, what is it about the the retro scene that you find uh, so so interesting? I mean, obviously, you have a passion for old games and old computers and the history. What is it about it that keeps you pumping out all the awesome content that you make? Um, in terms of like the stories that you get. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what is it about gaming in particular that keeps you going back to that well? I think. In terms of the games themselves, I think that a lot of the games are timeless in a way. Like something, I mean, well, I mean, that will be the same for like good games from this when good games from this era become retro. But the best stuff is timeless. The worst stuff is often very curious still. But I think in general, one of the things that keeps me coming back to like the retro, or certainly when it comes to making videos, um, 
I don't there seemed to be a lot more characters back then in a games development it was kind of a, a brave new world still and you had a, people with like a lot of swagger going about and you had some pretty crazy stories whether it's like the people who used to run work for ocean back in the day or um, people like wild bill from microprose or uh, jack tramell and like looking at looking at him and um, looking at all the stuff that he did in his career um it was kind of um people's like setups and that were a lot more individual like companies kind of more individually focused Whereas I don't know if you can really get that these days. I think that's one of the main differences. Mm-hmm. And that's what entices me to the retro world and making videos about that. That makes sense. Is there one particular uh, company that you just think has the, the most interesting backstory, you know, of all the different ones you've covered? I think as far as, like, company or um, people or anyone like that goes, mm-hmm. um, there's been a few... Um, again, I'd say Jack Tramiel. Oh, sure. When I, I've done a few videos on him, um, kind, and he kind of started out as a kind of, I mean, I mean, kind of almost learning about the guy as I do the videos on him. And it almost starts out as just thinking, well, he's a ruthless businessman and not much else. But then as you, go, you gradually sort of understand the reasonings behind, like, how, why he chose, to, why he um, had those business practices, like, his, his ruthlessness you find out all about his backstory you find out about various things like when he took over atari mm-hmm. and like some of the people who used to work for atari back then likened it to like the stormtroopers oh yeah coming marching in fire <laughs> <laughs> anyone like within 10 minutes who they didn't think was worth anything like and you certainly like i mean you see like how a lot of people could find that like, someone like that quite disagreeable to work with mm-hmm. um Especially if they got on the wrong side. A lot of people who did work with him were very dedicated to him, like more dedicated than they were to say some of the bosses that Amiga had or that Commodore had rather later on that didn't nearly have the force of character and personality that Jack had. Right. I mean, but, obviously, I, I want people to watch because I think all of your all of your videos on on Jack are are great, and and I'm not just saying that. I really I watch every single thing that you do. I think you're awesome. Um, what what is your takeaway on Jack? If you could just sum it up, and in, in just a couple sentences, my takeaway on Jack would be he was um, the closest computer gaming's ever got to General Pattern. Hmm. In that he may you know you may not like his methods, but ninety five percent of the people who worked to him were down to pretty much die for him. Wow. That's what that's what I'd say. That's um that's what he reminds me the most of. Mm-hmm. Um, a very different world if he'd end up being the winner and not like Bill Gates. Absolutely, that's true. That's true. What do you, you to get one over on Bill Gates as well? <laughs> <laughs> what do you think about um, you know? I know that you've done a, a, a video when I. When we started doing the podcast, uh, one of my main, because um, I came into the Amiga not knowing anything, totally clean. That was the that was the shtick. Aaron knew a ton, and I didn't know very much. And one of the things that I watched um, was uh, your video to get up to speed on on the history of the company. And um, how do you think things might have been different? What do you think the tipping point was in the Amiga uh, where they you know they really started to lose the battle? Um, well, the trouble with Commodore always, and 
it was something that always hanging over Jack's head was Irving Gould mm-hmm. and the fact that he kind of owed a lot well he held he, the purse strings he held the purse strings so mm-hmm. whether Jack liked it or not he was in Irving Gould's pocket and that was always a situation that was going to be untenable um I think that the situation for Commodore even like close to the end was perhaps salvageable in some way I think what they needed to do was um become more worldwide and get perhaps you know get um the leadership of the company away from the chaotic american like management mm-hmm. get it like europe where like especially because i mean the in the u.s it seems like the amiga kind of isn't much of a thin like after 1990 1991 right right so i think they really should have focused more on like advancing like the european market maybe getting someone like david pleasance colin proudfoot into a higher position i mean i know they, they tried to take over amiga at the end it didn't work out escom got it mm-hmm. but maybe perhaps they would have been able to salvage something because i mean there's no doubt that the research team that the westchester and all those people they had so many great ideas and such a great vision for commodore that the management were just too tight to even consider and in the end, a lot of that comes down to Irving Gould, regardless of, you know, what people can say about Mehdi Ali or whatever. Obviously, you know, we can say a lot about Mehdi Ali, mm-hmm. who appointed him. Yeah, that's true. That's true. It's it's sort of, I think Ali, you know, he's he's really the scapegoat when, like you said, Irving Gould was the person that put him in power and the person with all the money. So, Yeah, yeah. and he was, he was a, well, he, he, he preferred, you know, being a kind of international playboy. Or tycoon as opposed to actually running a business. Yeah, yeah, it would be different if uh, if Commodore UK or David Pleasance would have would have been given the the full reins of the the company. Hardware wise, um, do you think that uh, the way that the the twelve hundred was was launched and marketed? I mean, do you think if they would have included something like I don't know. Um, one of the things about the Amiga is that it was always a one-button system. There were a couple games that were two-button support, and of course, towards the end, after the CD32, they started developing two-button games. How much of a how much of a part do you think that that played in sort of the I don't want to say failure, but the less than success of the Amiga in terms of matching it up against the Super Nintendo or the Genesis or Mega Drive? I think it was a restriction. Um, it was a massive restriction to, con- to still continue to be largely having games that were just one. But um, I mean, just look at um, the Amiga Street Fighter Two. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was the big game, like in 1992, especially 91 to 93. The fighting games were all the way to Street Fighter, whether it was Mortal Kombat. Mortal Kombat, not too bad for what it was, but yeah, like having such a restriction on one button really limited, not just like original fighting games on the system like shadow fighter or body blows but especially those ports that could have been killer apps on the amiga but not i mean obviously down to those both lack of programming ability especially for street fighter 2 and the restrictions on the controls that was that really hurt them super street fighter 2 wasn't too bad but by no. the time that came late anyway it was too late. It was too late. Yeah. Or the, is there anything else that you think, you know, hardware-wise, um, Commodore should have done to to market the Amiga that could have contributed to more success? It's a shame the CD32 didn't come perhaps a bit earlier. Mm-hmm. It's a shame that because I mean the CD32, especially like often when we look on it now, we kind of see it as like this quite an ideal Amiga, especially like for people who like games. 
you know you can still you can put a mouse and keyboard on it still oh, yeah. better control a better games and you've got so much i mean if it had come out earlier perhaps it would have had a bit more third party support there perhaps be people maybe still willing to um produce games and we wouldn't have had like a lot of games that were essentially just ports from the a1200 we might have had some stuff that actually harnessed the cd and the amiga together properly mm-hmm. um and yeah, maybe maybe that could have done more. But again, it was just by the time it came out, nineteen ninety four, people were already starting to move away from the Amiga. Very true. I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, one thing obviously that was obviously going to come that would have been really tough for the Amiga anyway was the arrival of like the FPS becoming like the big genre. I mean, because a lot a lot of people would have simply said like, "Where's Doom?" Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, we just try. I mean, obviously, our first-person shooters on the Amiga, but not having Doom is going to be a big deal. Mm-hmm. Back in yeah, I don't think that you know. I don't think anybody, or maybe I'm sure there were some people, but uh, the the arrival of especially dedicated graphics cards and PCs and really being able to run first-person shooters that was something that the Amiga in its current state could never hope to to accomplish. I mean, if you look at Gloom and some of the games like that, they're impressive for running on the hardware that they're on, but they just couldn't keep up. Yeah, they're just not the same. I mean, yeah, they are good. I mean, um, Ahoy has a fantastic video about Amiga FPS and like games like Gloom, Alien Breed 3D, Fears, mm-hmm. and like, what they do really well. But obviously, when if, just like just think about like the person in the street, the lay person, you put that up and then you put Doom next to it. It's yeah. You it's... Know, <laughs> <laughs> what are some of the uh, you know since you since you started doing more and more of these here lately are have there been any systems that you've covered that you you didn't know about that really surprised you um i think there's a lot of systems that um just through doing this through um research and also interacting with certain people Mm -hmm. systems that i really didn't know much about things like i suppose the amstrad cpc um i never thought too much of that back in the day because obviously never had it it was kind of well, not before my time, but had the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the stuff that people are doing for that now on homebrew, um, you see things like ports of pinball dreams to the Amstrad oh, yeah. CPC. Oh yeah, it's stunning. Mm-hmm. It's like run full frame. Like the graphics, are obviously not Amiga quality, but they're pretty good. And it's like wow, you know, I didn't know that that system could do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something that really surprised me. It makes me think, do I really want to? Um, I actually kind of making sort of plans to kind of get some more knowledge of that i mean it's kind of like and also like going to places like um computer museums and that becoming aware of like some of the smaller systems as well that were around the more obscure stuff like uh, memo techs or enterprises and i mean i love looking at old computers and seeing you know all the sort of little because that was kind of the beautiful thing especially back in the early 80s i mean there were i mean we only kind of know perhaps spectrum c64 amstrad these days msx but there are dozens, hundreds of them. It's so amazing to me. You know, I, uh, of course, I'm from America, but I went to the University of Sheffield for graduate school and uh, talking to my professors there uh, and how many of them were, you know, they had all this knowledge of all these different computers that I had never heard of. And that was really my introduction to the, the spectrum. And I just found out about something called the Jupiter Ace. Have you heard of that one? Yes, kind of relative to the spectrum. Um, it's kind of relative to the spectrum, but I think it uses a Fortran instead of basic, if I'm right. I think it uses fourth. Fourth, that's yeah, it. Not yeah, fourth. yeah. And so, but I mean, what? 
Do you have any thoughts on why Britain was such a hotbed of microactivity, you know, in the early to mid 80s? There's always been, well, um, the government pushed it a lot mm-hmm. at the time. Um, so politically, it was something in that um, a lot of UK industry was failing mm-hmm. um, kind of in the early 80s. So um, in 1982, um, the Conservative government launched something called IT Year. Um, so that kind of really pushed computers and kind of made people like Sir Clive Sinclair, Christopher Curry, people like that more famous. But I think also there's one of the great British um, images is that kind of Clive Sinclair image of like, I don't know, the inventor in his shed. Sure, the Thomas Edison of England sort of thing. Yeah, um, and also I kind of combine that with um, that sort of conservative uh, Margaret Thatcher entrepreneur. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, like getting your own kind of business here. I think that's kind of one of the reasons why you had so many different computers. I mean, a lot of them are pretty similar. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you have like all these different, they've, they've all kind of got different quirks. So I think I think that sort of image has a lot to do with it, as long as like as well as like the political climate of the time. And it was just um, it was a very ripe, it was a very ripe time for computers back in the early eighties. Yeah, everyone was involved in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What uh, would you say that the spectrum? What? No, I'm just going to ask you. What is what is your all time favorite micro? <laughs> uh, I'd have to say the spectrum. Yeah, it was my it was my first one. It's. I wouldn't. I, if I wouldn't be here without it, I wouldn't be talking to you doing mm. what I'm doing now. If, if it wasn't for the spectrum, I, my love for video games and that would be very different if I'd never had that spectrum from such an early age. Mm-hmm. Do you think it was just it was the? To me, you know, I'm somebody that, you know, I'm I'm one of the few people in America that can just reach over here and just pull one out, um, and uh, it's to me it's. The combination of its size, you know, there's no bulky power supply hanging off the back of it. It's compact. You could fit it anywhere. I'm sure it was relatively cheap when it came out. But the big thing oh. is the big thing is the games. The games are so good. It's it's when we started covering the system, I thought that this was just gonna be like sort of CGA early DOS level stuff. I couldn't yeah. have been more wrong. No, there's so much creativity on the spectrum. I mean, I think you had these very young people, like 16, sometimes even younger, people making games. And um, I think the beautiful thing about a lot of the games on the spectrum is that the, a lot of the rules for like making games of game design, they hadn't been set back then. It was still very young. Mm-hmm. So you have a lot of these games that are like, like you have a game like a Trash Man, let's oh, yeah. say. Mm-hmm. Um, beautifully designed game. Um, but who would think about making a game where you know the whole point is to take out someone's trash mm-hmm. Who, mm-hmm. who would think up the idea for a game even like manic mind i mean not manic mind it's kind of basic platform game in many ways but having that certain kookiness about it there's um i think one of the things that the spectrum has the games even though obviously the graphics are not exactly as high fidelity and certainly the sound isn't as something like the c64 but i think spectrum games have a lot of character they do and you you see that as they are, as Spectrum games were ported to C sixty four and other platforms, they never retained the same charm. We just got done covering a game called Deactivators. Are you familiar with that one? I've heard of it. This is a game where you are a bomb. You control a, a, a group of bomb disposal robots, and you traverse this uh, this building in three dimensions. Um, and when it was ported to the C sixty four. Uh, it it got 
it just it lost something because I think a lot of it was the fact that so many Spectrum games were just that stark black background with the vivid, vivid colors. And when you mm. transport that over to the C64's kind of drab palette, it really just loses a lot of the charm. Yeah, that kind of happened with a lot of the C64 ports. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, what are... Okay, this is a two-part question. Who are some of the people that you've been most happy to meet as a result of your channel? And who is someone that you would very much like to get to talk to related to the world of gaming? Sure. Um, as far as like, people in the um, gaming world goes, like sort of Legends, I'm very proud to have done a big interview with uh, John Hare for the Sensible video that I did. Happy to have met people like David Pleasance as well really lovely person i think that the people i've been happiest to meet though is kind of a lot of my comrades i suppose one of the great things about being part of like the youtube uk youtube community is the amount of um it's kind of a small community mm-hmm. so we kind of end up being quite friendly so that's that's always been fun um as far as people who i'd like to meet goes i would love to meet um yuji naka You'll have to tell me who that is. Yuji uh, Naka from a Sega creator of Sonic the Hedgehog. Okay. Oh, Yuji. Okay. I, I yeah. imagine. Yeah. Right. Me. On the computer side, I think as well, there's... I mean, there's people who have been around who I haven't had the chance to meet yet. People like um, Mike Montgomery from the Bitmaps, um, Gary Bracey. There's sort of so many people I'd like to, you know, pick the brains of. Mm-hmm. And also maybe Peter Molyneux as well. Yeah, that would be that would be quite a get. Of course, getting Yuji Naka, that would be that would be huge too. Um, what? Where do you see? I mean, do you see yourself um, in the direction of your channel, sort of continuing along? Obviously, you've hit great momentum. Your you know your 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 popularity keeps exponentially growing year after year. Do you see yourself sort of continuing along the same lines, or do you see yourself at some point? Um, I don't know, moving the focus of your channel to something else? Um, I always like to follow my whims. I don't like to be um, pigeonholed into one area. Like, I don't think I necessarily do like, nothing but documentaries or nothing but game reviews because I feel like I have to change things up. But I don't think I'd stop doing them. I just add other things onto the bow, mm-hmm. whether, it's related, whether it's something related to computers or gaming or if it's something completely different. I mean, I've done that before. I've done, you know, stuff about TV, stuff about wrestling as well which is another big hobby and passion of mine um even stuff about history and faith healers and so, mm-hmm. I, so i've always been um, i've never kind of been one to follow what's to chase like the zeitgeist i suppose like what's commercially successful i was kind of follow my own path i think so yeah i mean i'll probably always do like different subjects but it'll kind of always be in a similar style Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm glad that you mentioned wrestling because uh, I, I want to ask you a couple questions just about, you know, the world of UK wrestling is endlessly fascinating to me. Uh, you got people like Giant Haystack and people that, you know, we never heard of over here. And um, what do you think about, you know, the current direction of the wrestling scene in the UK? Um, it's kind of difficult at the moment. Um, a few years ago, we had a really strong period. Um, I think kind of a lot of companies have adjusted to um, the fact that obviously WWE have come in. Mm-hmm. 
we now have NXT UK, and that's um, kind of made things tricky for a lot of people. It's kind of split things up a bit, and so maybe motivate the um, the momentum that British wrestling had a few years ago is now not quite the same. Obviously, though, we have very successful exports. People like oh, Will yeah. Swain, yeah. that era, really flying the flag, Drew McIntyre. What are the big What are the big independent promotions going on right now in the UK? Um, well, there's Progress is always quite a big one. Um, Rev Pro, who work with a uh, New Japan Pro Wrestling, mm-hmm. is quite big. Um, you've got ICW up in Scotland. I think they're kind of connected with WWE. I think Progress are as well. Actually, I think those are probably kind of the three big ones right now. Mm-hmm. Are are you familiar with the AEW promotion over here in the states? Yes, all of it. Yeah. Yeah. I, do you have any? You know, Aaron, my co-host, is a, he actually just went to an AEW show and he had a blast, and he was wondering if I could. Do you have any thoughts on on that current promotion? I just want to keep doing what they're doing. I think it's it's a fantastic time for wrestling having like two companies kind of going head to head on a night again because mm-hmm. it seems like it's been quite a while since we've had that. Well, it has been. And to have it be like AEW and NXT, which to me is the only part of WWE really worth watching these days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's fun because I think that having those two actually having competition drives them both to create better products mm-hmm. and to really put on a good show each week. And we've really missed that in wrestling for the past, well, over 20 years. If you were going to tell me a uh, neophyte uh British wrestling fan, you know who are some who are some people I should be on the lookout for when I'm going through classic YouTube matches of the '80s. Um, there were so many people in um, the world of sports days, as they were when it was on ITV, that um, were incredibly technically gifted wrestlers. Uh, people like Johnny Saint, I suppose, is one of the most influential wrestlers from the whole scene. Um, just such a technical wizard. Um, as were people like Jim Brakes. Obviously, there's names you've probably already heard of, people like Dynamite Kid. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Fit Finley. Mm-hmm. That very talent as well. Mark Rocco, who wrestled as Black Tiger in Japan. There are so many talented wrestlers. I mean, obviously, there was, you know, Big Daddy and Giant Haystacks were very popular. Mm-hmm. And they had, like, an audience for about 15 million and made 20 million, I think it was, for a match of theirs at Wembley Arena. That's unbelievable. <laughs> Yeah, no, that nineteen eighty is insane. But that's not what British wrestling really was. Like these two kind of overweight people <laughs> barely pushing each other. It's a terrible match, absolutely horrendous match. <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah, no, there was so much great stuff like on the undercard of British wrestling that's really worth seeking out if you're a fan of the sport. Because it's quite different. It's got a very different vibe to watching, say, classic like any other wrestling, classic American, Japanese Mexico is kind of like you've got quite a hushed atmosphere. You've got very Kent Walton as the commentator has got a very hushed, very sport professional sports customers smoking mm, mm. cigarettes. It's like he's commentating on a snooker match. He's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's very different. I definitely recommend. I know, and you've got like the round system as well. Matches like two out of three falls. You've got the yeah. You've got the referee Max Ward who's like he always he's always counting the wrestlers like one nay two we. That's all the stuff that I love, you know. This it's the it's the little things that that make it different. And like you said, the more it's it's completely the opposite of Jerry Lawler or somebody like that, you know. Oh, yeah. That, yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and also you've got all lots of old ladies and that in the audience. <laughs> 
got the hills. <laughs> well, Kim, as we as we wrap things up, uh, I always like to ask the ultimate and cliche uh, retro gaming interview questions. I need to know about. Give me one. Uh, Desert Island single player game and one multiplayer game. Any any platform, any time period. Well, I would say multiplayer would have to be Streets of Rage 2. Okay. Is I just this for the Mega Drive? Yeah, for the Mega Drive. Mm-hmm. It has that perfect experience, me, multiplayer. Rocket League might be close because I do like that one as far as a modern game goes. But yeah, it'd have to be Streets of Rage 2. Single player... I think as much as I've played it often, I would probably still have to go for the game that I consider my favourite of all time, which is Final Fantasy VII. Very cliched answer to the cliched question, but that was a game like when I was like 13. It was a kind of a game changer for me, like the first game I've probably played on PlayStation. And yeah, that was a very special one for me. So I think I'd have to go with that. Okay, two fine co- choices. I agree with. Uh, well, I'm probably not the Streets of Rage fan that you are, but I could I could probably play Final Fantasy VII a couple more times before I kick the bucket and still enjoy it. Um, so, is there anything you want to plug? Any news or events coming up in in the world of Kim that that we should know about? Um. Well, my kind of my channel is doing things. Um. Obviously, if you search Kim Justice on YouTube, you'll find it. I tend to post most Mondays. Um, as far as events coming up, there's nothing really penned in yet, but there's usually like play expos in the UK. I'm always at them and various other conventions. You can often find me out. I think the next one of those is in Margate in February for um, our UK listeners, and there's Manchester in May as well. Um, yeah, I mean, the videos are kind of the main thing i mean i've got a top 50 of master system games coming up something to do with the amstrad cpc and also another quite big potentially um software company documentary about system free is also on the cards okay well that sounds great well thank you so much for taking time out of your uh busy evening and um yeah i uh i really appreciate it you do excellent work awesome thank you so much it's been a pleasure all right bye-bye Bye-bye. Adios, amigos.